on this episode of Scale Talk. Like this last table I built that was 26 feet long. It literally went from wall to wall in my shop. And for must have been six months to get from one side of my shop to the other, I had to crawl underneath that table. No way. So I, I, I had foam mats between my sawhorses that I'd get down, crawl under, get back up. Wow, your your thighs oh, must yeah. have been on yeah. fire. But <laughs> I should be in better shape than I am. After oh, man. This podcast is sponsored by Nine Steps Industries. They are my supplier for tweezers and nippers, as well as other tools I use every day in the shop. A little bit more about them later in the podcast. Scale Talk Podcast with David Miniatures. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Episode 3 of Scale Talk Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Ryan Hassan of Ryan Hassan Woodworks. He's the guy that you see all over the internet that creates those crazy construction sites inside of tables. I've been following Ryan for quite a while. Uh, he's been following me. And uh, we'll tell you a little bit later on how we started uh, chatting up. It's a pretty interesting story. So, Ryan, uh, I'm going to start off by just letting you sort of introduce yourself um, and just letting us know how you got into this is a lot of people want to know why construction sites, right? right. So, and I'm, I'm curious too. I don't think I've ever asked you that in all the chats we've had. So take it away. Yeah, I guess the people that, uh, that know me on a personal level will know why construction, but we'll get into that. So hey everyone, I'm Ryan. I'm like late twenties, uh, a guy that likes to make stuff. And I always have since I was a young kid. Um, now my Instagram handle, Ryan Hassan Woodworks, it's, it makes less and less sense as I get more into my kind of niche type of work with the miniatures and, you know, the stuff that we have, have in common, David. Um, but woodworking is really where everything got started for me. Um, back in uh, grade six, I can remember it. In grade six, you you get to pick option classes. And, um, you know, I, I, I wanted to go into art class. I've always kind of been into art. I was never an artist. I, I can't draw well or, any, or paint well, anything like that. But I knew I wanted to go into art, but it was full. So I got put into woodshop, industrial arts, they called it. And I wasn't happy about it at the time. Um, but so I go, I got put into woodshop and I guess long story short, I fell in love with it. Um, right from the beginning, we, we started with the most basic thing, which was making like scale animal puzzles on a scroll saw, which is like a jigsaw, but you, you move the wood around the machine rather than the machine around the wood. Um, and I remember I wasn't that good at it. There were other kids in the class that like, man, they were following the lines way better than I was. <laughs> so I wasn't, I wasn't special at it or anything, but I loved it. And so, you know, for Christmas that, that year, I asked for a scroll saw. I was like, I really like doing this. I want to do this at home. I want to make gifts for family and stuff. So my parents being supportive. Oh, man. Grade six. So it would have been 11. Yeah, 11-ish. Um, so yeah, I asked for a scroll saw for Christmas. And my parents were really supportive. They got me like an entry-level, you know, budget scroll saw. And I burnt the motor out on it because <laughs> I used it so much. Yeah, I think you might have broke this, boss. Um, and I guess that's really, that's all where it started to go to school, but woodworking was always a hobby of mine. And it, I never made any money off of it, but it's, it's a hobby and you do it because you love it and you give everything away. And then, of course, they start asking you for things because they know that you're the guy that can make it. 
So why, um, why construction sites? So you said people that know you would, would think well, it's logical, but for the rest of the world, it doesn't. Yeah. So, yeah. So as my woodworking evolved, like, I, I guess going back even farther. So, um, my family works in the construction business. Um, my dad's in construction and always has been for my whole life. So I mean, it's, it's not uncommon for little boys to have Tonka trucks and mm -hmm. things like that. Um, but I was one of those kids. I had a sandbox. I like to make roads with machines and I've always loved construction. And so I started integrating that into my woodworking as it got a bit better. Kind of, I guess when I was like 13, I made a, a gift for a, a relative in out in Ontario, Canada. And to show her appreciation, she sent me a, a gift card to the store called Lee Valley, which is like a really a, a nice store for like high-end woodworking tools. I remember when I got this gift card, I was like, man, I wish this is like, this was a Home Depot gift card, like a real tool <laughs> store. I get some real tools. <laughs> but it had my, my dad drive me to this Lee Valley store. And now it's like my go-to store for tools or woodworking mm -hmm. tools. But at the store, I got this, uh, um, this set of plans to build a scale model excavator. I was like, oh, this is amazing. I do some woodworking. This is an excavator. I love excavators and construction, so I'll learn how to build that. I remember I got home and I opened up the plans and I had no idea how I was going <laughs> to possibly build this thing. But I built it and eventually I started building more of these models from purchase plans and then designing my own models. And really that's how I started integrating construction into my woodworking. And then later on, we get into the dioramas. And I guess what kind of brought me into this um, world, really, on Instagram and meeting people like you and um, everyone else that have been in this world of miniatures for years. Uh, but I'm really, uh, I'm really new to it. Just three years ago, I guess, mm -hmm. I started um, doing the miniatures. And... Uh... And forgive me if you've posted about this or or whatever. Um, do you? And it's also for the viewers, maybe who who don't know or are not as familiar with your work. Um, is there a portion? Because uh, so you're most mostly known for the tables with the construction sites inside. Like that's yeah, that that's kind of where that's where everything blew up. Blew up. Yeah. Um, and what portion of that is not done by you? Just that, like, is the table done by you? Obviously, the glass is probably something you ordered uh, to size. Yeah, I order the glass, but I build everything okay. else for the most part. Okay. Because um, woodworking is my background. Right. And I suppose maybe I should touch on how like these tables came to be because it was... Yes, I'm very curious about that. Whole path that... It was a whole path that I never, I don't know, envisioned. Be kind of before you say about. that, um, <laughs> I want to tell you the first time I ever saw your stuff, the thought I had. So I watch okay. uh, a lot of, I guess you can call it unrelated content. Like I don't watch a lot of miniature stuff on YouTube, uh, but I watch a ton of YouTube. I have YouTube premium. Like that's how much I watch it. And I watch a ton of woodworking channels. Uh, okay. Blacktail studio, like a bunch of these guys, like I love this stuff. Yep. And when I first, very first time I saw you sort of revealing one of your tables and you were like, it was one of those videos where you were showing a little bit of the process to the finished thing. The whole time I'm like, if this guy covers this in resin, <laughs> like not the table, but like the construction <laughs> site, 
I was like, I'm going to lose yeah. it. <laughs> and then you didn't. I was like, yeah. Hey, that that's the cool thing yeah. to do, man. You got to cover that stuff in resin if you want to be cool. But no, you know how expensive that it, would be? It's not only that. I find... Tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah, I've seen that. other people do... Um, these these resin tables and in the middle they'll do like a star wars dogfight scene and whatever and it I've looks so too. good and then yeah. they put it in resin and it creates this weird like looking through a fish tank kind of effect like it's not you don't you yeah. lose so much detail and texture and especially you like you have so much dirt and sand like that just wouldn't work covered in resin you know yeah because like i def i definitely thought about it right like how do i protect yeah. this um, cause I knew nothing about like scale model railroad building or anything like that. So I'm trying to figure out how do I get everything to stay in place and just the risk of pouring resin on this thing that I've spent. Oh my God. I can't even imagine for it to have it all go sideways. Like I, I figured, okay, we know glass is good. It's going to be clear. It's not, there's no yeah. risk. And if it breaks, you replace the glass. Like it's yeah. 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 So you were saying, um, how, you know, how did this, and, and for those watching on YouTube, uh, I'm going to put up some pictures of, of Ryan's stuff as he's talking about it. But um, yeah, so how, how did it come about like doing this inside of a table? And then was it like a request from a client? And then it kind of went that way or? Well, I work, so, so I guess my full-time job, I don't do this full-time. Full-time, I'm an estimator and project manager for a, a heavy civil construction company uh, that installs sewer and water um, okay. pipelines and infrastructure. So that's my day job. So I was sitting at my desk one day and I had a scale model excavator sitting on my desk and that you started made? daydreaming as you do. Uh, no, it was just a okay. little die cast, uh, John Deere okay. excavator. I used to get them as kids and I just, you know, like put yeah. it on my desk because it's just, <laughs> you know, it's cool to, it, cause you never know, know what can happen if you start yeah. looking at it. <laughs> so so I was looking at this model and I was daydreaming and I was thinking, man, like it'd be, it'd be cool if I could stage this almost like it was digging a, a trench or laying a pipe and maybe some other equipment around it. Like we have on our construction sites and I'm like, well, it could be, well, I guess it could be like a little display or something like that. And maybe I could put it in a, in a coffee table or something, or maybe, maybe a boardroom table. That'd be kind of cool. And so the, the wheels just kept turning and turning and I was like, oh, well, what if I make it like a whole um, kind of like a production scene showing the different stages of installing uh, pipe and backfilling it and, you know, the ground looking like nothing mm -hmm. ever happened. Uh, kind of like what, so kind of capturing what um, the company I work for, um, like what we do every day, what our, our people do every day, trying to capture that in a model. And so um, I went to my dad because I work uh, with my dad and I said, Hey, I got this like cool idea for like a conference table. It's going to, you know, have a whole trench with the equipment working. It's going to show them pre-cutting, excavating, installing the pipe. You're going to have track loaders and packers on the back to the backfill. Um, and it's going to be in a table between two natural edge wood slabs Going to be glass on top. And then we're going to need something underneath because there's a trench to cover it. So we'll put a piece of PVC pipe there and, you know, it's just start rambling off this, mm -hmm. this vision i guess you you could call it and he was like well no i don't really get it ryan i think i think we're okay with the table <laughs> we have i was like no 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 i think this is this is a pretty yeah. good idea i said let me try to draw something out so you can see and then i i drew 
a really terrible sketch and showed him and he said, well, you, you seem to have this thing figured out and you think it's a good idea. And I, I say, yeah, just go for it. I, I trust, you know, that you know what you're doing. What's it going to cost me? And I said, well, geez, I don't know, like cost of materials, maybe 10, 10 grand or something. And he's like, okay, well, go ahead. <laughs> which, which anybody that's, and so I built anybody that table. purchased tables that size with, you know, resin or anything in there, like they're worth more than that. Oh yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking like, oh, just cover the cost of materials. And really I hadn't put together a, a hard number or anything of what that would be. And I blew the budget by the <laughs> way, but my, my workshop was in his part of his shop. So he could see the process and that it was, you know, going in a good direction. Um, but I, so I made that table and I, like I said, I'd never done scale rail railroad modeling, which is kind of the most similar thing yeah. to this what I could find at the time. So I got some magazines and I had them beside my bed. I was trying to figure out how to do like the dirt and all the little tips and tricks just to try to make this mm -hmm. thing come to life. And so, and so I did that and then I posted on social media and usually what I was used to at the time was like 12 likes from friends and family and maybe like three mm -hmm. comments, <laughs> but that wasn't the case here, man. Like it, it blew up. Um, was it the very first time you posted about it that it blew up? I guess working on it, I posted like a couple progress pictures of what I was doing and my following at the time, like no one really knew anything about scale um, dioramas and landscape and or train layouts or anything like that. So no one really knew what, what mm -hmm. it was going to be. So I didn't really get much traction when I was doing those progress posts. But then when I posted the final thing on like Facebook and LinkedIn and Instagram, like it just, it blew up. I think LinkedIn was really? the biggest and I've never had a post get that big on LinkedIn since then. Uh, I think it reached like 1.7. Wow. People. I didn't even know LinkedIn could do that. Which like is... I post some things on LinkedIn, but like it's always an afterthought. Like it's, I don't, I don't really think about it that much. I, I think I've only yeah. had a LinkedIn for my David miniatures for maybe six months like it's very recent right and I, I i did it mostly like to share like if um because just in the past year i've done so many like interviews and articles and this and that so i was like i feel like that's more of like a linkedin share than like instagram it's hard to share like yeah. an article or something like that um that's that's pretty fascinating um one of my questions was going to be you know what was was the piece that made it big um but you pretty much answered that question and I, I i kind of knew the answer before um so what what has that led to you know like for for people out there that are listening and and it's funny because i'm i'm all often asked my advice on things just because i've been doing this for so long and um you know i always tell people like just keep doing what you love and you'll eventually have a big break and having a big break nowadays versus 10, 15 years ago is not the same thing. You know, 10, 15 years ago, you would literally have yeah, to like, it's tough, happen to get a client that knows a celebrity that knows like, you know, like something like that. And now you could just be a random dude on Instagram and you post your work and boom, next thing you know, you have a business. Yeah, the algorithm catches it and you, 
you just yeah know. and yeah. um you also have to be ready like i've i've known people that had a piece go viral and i'm not going to mention any names um they've had a piece go viral and they've done nothing with it they've done nothing with they, they like they did not harness that moment and like work off of it um and i i have a background in like graphic design and marketing and things like that and i i see those opportunities and i like like a hawk i just grab onto them um mm -hmm. one example i can think of is i had done these little sort of 80s basement rooms for the duffer brothers for uh, from stranger things and when i posted them they went viral and at first i was like oh they went viral because i did it for the duffer brothers but then I was getting like message after message after message, like, how can I get this? How can I get one? And, you know, like, if you do one for me, can I customize it and tell you what posters I wanted it or whatever? And I was like, you know what? And sorry, th these aren't your recent strangers. No, this is like from like, almost two that? years ago. Um, okay. So, yeah, someone from the Duffer Brothers reached out and said, you know, they want these little rooms to sort of commemorate. They started their own... Um, production company called upside down pictures so they wanted something to just encompass the 80s and all their favorite movies and whatever um, so i made one for each of the brothers they had different things in them um, but when i saw how that blew up i decided to capitalize on it and i actually turned it into one of my most popular products now which is my retro rooms um, and people can customize them they can put whatever they want it can be a big room it can be a little room uh, the one I'm working on now. Yeah, they're awesome, man. I yeah, them. the one I'm working on now. The guy asked me. He's like, "Hey, can?" He's like, "I know it doesn't fit into like, you know, your 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 template on your website, but he's like, I'd like a room that's actually two rooms, like a living room and then a door and then like a, a bedroom." And I was like, "Yeah, like mm -hmm. anything's doable, you know." Um, so just that little moment. Had I just been like, "Yep, I did something cool for the Duffer Brothers, thanks," and like not capitalized on it. That was a huge, huge, like would have been a huge revenue loss for me, you know? Um, yeah. So I think like good on you for recognizing that moment and sort of riding the wave. Um, and uh, that's a great segue into actually how you and I met. Uh, there was a Fox News in Tampa uh, did a segment and... I shared it uh, as a story on Instagram. Like, hey guys, I was on Fox. No, no, no. As I'm flipping through my stories that day, I see like Ryan, you know, I'm like, oh, why? Like, like we've, we've just said hi to each other, but like, why would he share my, my Fox interview, you know? And I'm watching and I'm like, wait a minute. This is not my Fox interview. This is his. And then I realized that we were on the same segment. Um, yep. yeah, I, I wasn't up early enough to catch the whole thing. So I only saw what they sent me as a clip and they edited down like just right. my portion. Right. Um, and I believe yours aired right before mine. Um, because mine, I thought it was strange. It started off with like, it's not construction. And I was like, what? I was like, what, what are they talking about? Um, what kind of intro? Yeah, so uh, that was a fun thing for uh, for those on YouTube. Uh, I'm going to put the clip in right now. This next video is for anyone who hates those boring meetings in the conference room because one company in Canada never has to worry about that again. That's because this guy just built them 
a completely new conference table. What? And this is a work of art. The table itself is a work of art. Ryan Hasen uh, started woodworking 15 years ago in shop class. Uh, he made this table for his company, Blue Con Calgary Excavating, recreating an entire construction scene using all their equipment and tiny figurines. <laughs> made the entire display, uh, the table, hand painted every little detail. And after that, he built another table for the cab pipeline in Georgia. Uh, right now, he is working on a third table for a company in Maine. That table is expected to be 26 feet long and then take about 10 months to complete. Who works with miniatures. Uh, this time, it's not construction. This is pop culture. Uh, the account is called David Miniatures, and he brings classic movie scenes back to life, but on a much, much smaller scale. David has been doing this type of work for over 10 years. It shows every little detail of his work is crafted by hand. The little light switches, tiny magazines, <laughs> pages that really flip. Look at this. Wow. Look at this. Each project can take him up to six weeks to finish. He makes you can order sets from David too. Just have to contact him on uh, TikTok, Instagram, or davidminiatures.com. But yeah, so that's how, and then we reached out to each other and was like, how funny is it that, you know, these two Canadian boys are on Fox News in Tampa, um, you know, being talked about in the news and all that. It was pretty, pretty interesting. I happened to get up early that morning and watch it. And I saw yours right after mine. I was like, hey, I know that guy. <laughs> yeah, it's so like, it's, it, you know, it's, it's no, no pun intended, but like the miniature community is a small world. Um, in, in yeah, the sense of like once, you know, I would say like if you start today, like within a year, you'll know a ton of people, you'll know, you know, certain players. Um, and it's, it's really fun to, to just meet people. And, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to start this podcast and why I started the other podca podcast I had done, excuse me, is most of us, the, this job, this craft, this hobby that we do is very, I don't want to say lonely, but like we do it by ourselves. You know, I, I like, unless you're a big, you know, miniature studio with employees and whatever, like most of us, you know, we're in our workshop by ourselves. We listen to music, we listen to the TV, we listen to podcasts. Um, and uh, this summer I had a little get together with a couple of people that are local. Um, and a lot of a lot of uh, makers and you know we they came to my shop for a visit and we chit-chatted and then like we went out for dinner and it was just so much fun to just talk shop and mm. you know like there's not many people you can talk about like how do you make dirt you know like the average person would just be like you yeah. dirt I, like you know it, it's yeah. it's a very niche craft and even within our our craft there's niches you have dollhouses you have railroad like you were saying and um you know back to the advice thing i was talking about before um i get asked for advice all the time and one of the things i always say and you are a perfect example of this is i always tell people find your niche and I'm like, if you become known for something specific and you're good at it, you will be successful almost guaranteed. 
Um, it's very easy in a creative world to be like, oh, this person's doing this. I can do that. And you probably can. You might even be better. But they're five, six, seven, ten years ahead of you. And here you are running behind them, trying to catch up and wondering why you're not getting followers, why you're not getting clients, why you can't go full time. Yeah. And the reason is you're not being original. And there's a ton of talented people in, in this business, but it's very hard to find niches that are not sort of taken or explored. You know, and you have to sort of find right. your own yeah. niche within a niche sometimes. Yeah, and, and it's tough right now because like on Instagram, like there's so many people out there that do amazing things and they yep. share it. And to try to find your space and all that in that busy crowd with all that chatterly and, and noise, like it's 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 yeah. tough. Um and I guess it's like I guess I was lucky because I just kind of stumbled into it and it just kind of happened. But if you're on a mission to become this, I don't know, this content creator artist that is known for one thing and you're going to go out there and somehow do it. Like if that's your mission, hard. like it's, you're, I don't know, it's, it's hard and I don't know how like fulfilling it's going to be if that's what your goal is. Like, I think you're much better off. Like you and I, like we're just doing what we, what we love and sharing it. And it's original because we've kind of created that niche. Um, and it just kind of, it, it yeah. grows. And become successful. And there's there's luck with that too, with the algorithm of For course, sure. Because no one really knows how it works. But um, I know like there's there's things you can do to try to increase your luck. Yeah. And and the thing is too, uh, I think I spoke a little bit about this with uh, Francois from Scaleton. There, there's also some, you know, it's, it's not like a lottery all the time. It's, you know, I think there's a certain set of skills but what i do have are a very particular set of skills that if you have on top of your art like art aside you know you you get to a point where like i've been doing this 11 years i'm my own accountant marketing like you know you have to master all these things to sort of create this perfect recipe for success um, which again goes back to what I said before, like you can have, you know, something go viral, but if you don't know what to do with that, that power or that information, that's all that's going to be that one post that went viral. Yeah. It's, it's, it's gonna, you're going to ride it and then it's going to, yeah. And there's no, there's no recipe capture. for making something viral. There's no recipe for making a video or a reel or something that works, but you'll eventually know what works for you. And that took me a really long time to figure out, um, you know, prior to like, I would say maybe two years ago, uh, I was only posting mostly photos. I was only posting finished works and I was rarely posting, uh, anything that had my hand in it or anything to show the scale. Right. And now that's like the opposite of what seems to do well these days. And I was always scared to post like my process or anything like that. Cause you know, as an artist, you always feel like I don't want to give away my secrets and stuff, but I also feel like it shows potential clients. It shows anybody on your social, like this is handmade. You know, this is not a toy that I bought that I repainted. This is not like, 
a kit. This is not, you know, like this is how they know like, whoa, like he painted that by hand or he, you know, whatever. Um, and when I started doing that and posting my process and, and just really showing the scale, um, that's when things started blowing up for me. Yeah. I mean, but like, I guess there's people out there and they're con some people could call us content creators, but there's people out there and their sole goal is to create content. So there's a lot of woodworkers who are content creators and they're building a piece for the, the content itself that it's going to, they're going to be able to create from it uh, for like a YouTube video. Yeah. And they don't even sell it. They don't even yeah. um, like, like black Hill studios with cam there. Like he, like it's all just for the content and maybe he'll sell a piece and donate that money to charity or do whatever. Yeah, there was even a video where he like broke it down and he's like, oh, this video I where I made one. this that table, was, was... I made $17,000. And and he's like, I still have it sitting in like my yeah. shed. Yeah, that was a cool video. You know, and then like he ended up selling it for like 20000 So he made the seventeen off the video and the twenty off, you know. Um, and the funny thing is, is uh, I've always been customer based first, meaning my income up until maybe a year or two ago was only from selling yeah. miniatures. And the past, I would say year and a half, I've made money as a content creator. And what I mean by that is either sponsorships of some sort or, um, you know, where I like, I make something, but it's purely for the, the video content. They don't actually want right. the build, which for me was the strangest thing ever. I'm like, so why am I making this? I, I don't understand. Yeah. Talking to a company right now and they're interested in the conversation started was that they're interested in the content of the process and sharing and um, I guess giving them some recognition of, throughout the process. And so I, I said in the meeting, I was like, this, to be honest, this is kind of weird to me because usually that's just kind of a byproduct and you know, the product, the physical product itself and and you know, that's what holds value. Um, and, and of course there's value to like the experience of them watching it being built. That's never like the social media aspect of it has never been my goal. But now it's just like you were saying, it's starting to, it's a door that's opened and it's, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to let it in. Like as much as like, as much as I can without it, I don't know, interfering with other things. Yeah, I just did a, a project for a Sennheiser, uh, the audio company. They make like high-end speakers and headphones and all that. And they reached out and they're like, yeah, so we want you to make this like holiday themed living room um, with like miniature versions of like our sound bar and our subwoofer. And then, you know, I brought in the whole thing. I was like, hey, what if we put all these little Easter eggs from like holiday movies? I could uh, watch just to sort of, and it, it looks yeah, and I, and. And it's also like, uh, as like, as a business owner, like it's also my job to tell them what would work on my channel. Right. So like a yeah. lot of people that follow me, like they like nostalgia, they like the eighties, the nineties, like that type of stuff. So I was trying to bring that into what they wanted uh, and they thought that was a great idea. So, um, but they didn't want me to send it to them. And really? I would, yeah. And I was just like, what do I do with it after <laughs> Like, I'm going to build this whole thing? And it, it's also like when I'm making something that's only for sale, not for con, like it's for a private client. Um, I like, I, I don't film everything. 
I'll film like, oh, I made this portion today and I'll, I'll film that. But I don't have like cameras running 24 seven when I'm building something versus when I'm doing a contract for content. I have two cameras all the time on what I'm doing and then I have to edit the video and like, it's a little bit more of a process. Um, yeah. But yeah, so that was weird. The Amazon project I did was the same. Uh, but in the end, I basically gave them an option. So I said, you know, this is the amount if you just want the content. And then if you want it shipped to you in sort of finished museum style, it's this much extra. Because uh, yeah, I was wondering about that. I was, I think I messaged you and I said, like, what is, like, obviously it's amazing, but like, what is the purpose of it? Like, I, I didn't know if like, they wanted the physical project and if so for what like what yeah. purpose did it no it was purely for promotional like to launch the um, the second season of the show um but in the end uh, amazon came back and said you know what they're like we're like they're like finish off the back and everything and they're like like ship it to us uh and i believe i i might be wrong but i believe they gifted it to the creator of the show uh, for his cool. birthday or something. Um, so yeah, cause that, like, I mean, that one was huge. I didn't know where I would have put it. You know, I would have probably tried to sell it or get rid of it. And like a lot of, like, I know your work is pretty much all custom. Yeah. And so if you were to build something like that and then they don't want it and now you have to sell it, it's a lot tougher to sell it to someone who's just, I don't know that, that that wasn't a part of the process and didn't have their say in the piece. Mm -hmm. And like, your price point is going to be different for sure. Yeah. Um, like you see people trying to sell, maybe it's a, a war themed diorama or a ship or something. And it's like a, a couple hundred bucks because they just kind of built it and they're just trying to get rid of it. Almost, yeah. They right? did it for themselves. And then they're like, well, my wife doesn't want it in the living room. So let me see if I can get yeah. rid of it. But I also think like that's, that's a, a, a sort of like it's a, a part of being an artist that a lot of artists have is first and foremost, they want to make what they want to make. And a lot of artists, that's their business model. It's I'm going to make this thing and then I'm going to post it online and see who wants to buy it. And right. that is extremely humbling to do because at that point it's finished and you basically have a constant list of people telling you that it's not worth that price or that they're not interested or, or whatever. And I know tons of artists that this is, this is how they work. The, the priority for them is I want to make what I want to make, not making money. And I'm lucky enough where it's a balance of both for me. Um, I, yeah, I mean, yeah, same here. I, I don't make what I want, but because I'm known for making a certain thing and I like making those types of things, then it, nothing is ever really painful for me. I'm at a point where I'm, I'm lucky enough that I can refuse work. So if somebody hits me up about like a movie I don't like or have never seen or a TV show or whatever, and I'm just like, I don't think I would do a good job because I'm, I'm not a fan of the show. I'm, I've never seen it or whatever. Uh, then I just turn it down or I've, I've recommended other artists that, you know, may want that job. Like, hey, you can have it, you know. I get that as well. Like people asking me, like I had someone just yesterday saying, oh, well, can you make um, a firefighting themed one? And I'm like, well, I could, but that's not where my passion is. It's not really my specialty. Mm -hmm. And like, I have a lot of other orders on the books right now. So it's just, you know, you have to 
you have to pass on it. Um, but I did have, um, recently I made like these two retirement gifts for this construction company where their owner or the, I guess the president and vice president, uh, were retiring. So they had these, um, smaller for me, small is like 12 inches by 18 inches. Like mm-hmm. that's a, a small project. Um, one of them was construction themed, which is like my specialty, but the other one was for their, um, vice president, who is also their cost controller. And they wanted this vintage 1985 calculator I saw that. in there with the printing receipt. So they wanted that. And even though that's totally not in my wheelhouse, it was still a really fun project to make. And if it was someone else who had just requested it out of the blue, I'd probably pass on it. Mm-hmm. But because it was kind of part of this package deal, um, it was totally different, but still, it's still fun to do. So yeah. it's always interesting to try things that are kind of outside of your I guess comfort zone area of focus and comfort zone. That's yeah. a better way of putting it. Um, but it's still, you know, if I had to pick the, between the two, I'd make the construction one any day for sure. And sometimes you, you need those clients that sort of, you know, push you out of your comfort zone, but you also have to be quick enough on your feet when having that conversation to, to sort of know, like, do I want to do this? Can I do this? Like, is it, something I want to do. Um, you know, I often have that with private commissions, which is, you know, things that are not based off movies. They're not based off TV shows. It's like a personal, it might be a random building, a random hotel or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, I always get worried that like, I'm not going to be as interested in it because it's not an eighties reference or it's not a, and I end up doing them, uh, Mostly because, you know, I, I do have a business to run. So, you know, I'm not going to refuse work unless I have a good reason. Um, but I've learned that I, I basically become a nerd for whatever I'm working on. You know, like if it's a right, random... You, you dig into the details. Yeah, like if it's a random hotel, you just start with like researching images and you're, you find out the building was built in 1805 and you're like, 1805? Jeez. And like you end up stumble on like some fan-made documentary on YouTube and... Next thing you know, you're obsessed yeah. with this random hotel and it, it's, it's just like, it's, you know, you, you get engulfed in it. The last table I built was a big one and it was, it was 26 feet long, but it was, it was a timeline for a construction company that was turning a hundred years old. They wanted to show the modern GPS equipment they have now with drones mm-hmm. going all the way back to the early 1920s when they started the company. And so being young and working in construction, I know construction equipment now, um, but it's all modern. I don't, I've never really cared to learn about the old stuff that got us to where we are today. Mm-hmm. And so to go back in time and like research and trying to find out which pieces of equipment make sense for that era and how the people dressed and the safety equipment they didn't use back then. And like, I, I got totally invested in vintage equipment and got to know people that are in that. That's so cool. Um, that, that specialty and but yeah like you just it, it, it doesn't seem to matter what project you're working on as long as you're a bit interested like you just get sucked in you get invested yeah like this own little world until you're done and you get spit back out and <laughs> yeah <laughs> your mind is kind of free to get hooked on the next thing yeah that's so well said that you nailed it yeah you get sucked in and then when you're done it's like an instant like and then you're out yeah and now you're yeah you know, on to the next thing. It's, it's, yeah, you said it perfectly. 
Today's sponsor is Nine Steps Industries, and I've been using Nine Steps products for quite some time now, and I must say, I absolutely love them. The quality of their nippers is fantastic. These premium side cutters are designed specifically for scale modelers and hobbyists alike. They are perfect for cutting a variety of materials in a super clean and efficient way, made with heat-treated steel for strength. The nine steps side cutters are sure to become the first tool of choice for all your precision cutting needs. Their tweezers are equally great, made from 304 stainless steel and bead blasted to a non-slip matte finish. These sharp, fine tip tweezers are perfect for handling those teeny tiny parts without the fear of losing them to the carpet monster. To find out more about Nine Steps Industries, visit ninestepsind.com. Thank you again to Nine Steps for sponsoring this podcast. What would you say is your favorite tool in your shop? Let's try and keep it miniature related. Okay, I was going to say, because, you know, you talk woodworking tools and everything else. Yeah. There's a lot. Um, I love my 3D printers. I have an Anycubic Mono and an M3 Max. They're they're pretty good. Um, but then I recently just got a laser, mm -hmm. a Thunder Laser, and having a lot of fun with that right now. Yeah, I can see that on your feed. Scale buildings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because the, the latest project, it, I got to build scale buildings. When I was a kid, I always wanted to be an architect. And I liked the idea of building scale um, buildings and architecture and all that mm -hmm. stuff. So it's kind of cool that that's almost come full circle where I get to do that. Yeah. So the laser has been a, a big learning curve for sure, but a lot of fun. Oh, it's it's such a game changer. I tell people all the time. Yeah. It's, yeah, and there's, you know, there's it's the so same thing like a, an inkjet printer, you know, like it, it's, it's all good and well, but like, if you don't have the photo or the image or the logo or whatever design it is, you need to print, it's kind of a useless yeah. machine, you know? Yeah. Um, you do a lot of that. Hey, like with all your miniature, like, um, boxes and magazines and posters, like, like you're, that's, that's one of the things that makes you unique. I think is like your ability to make those small printouts it's such a high quality yeah. making the paper look the right thickness that's the that's the, the, me on that. the graphic design background helps with that i do a lot yeah. of a lot of recreating a lot of um you know i i never i never uh sacrifice on you know I'll, I'll never try and find the font that's the closest i'll retrace the font i'll hunt down the right colors i'm i'm super super anal when it comes to that stuff uh, stuff that most people would, probably wouldn't even notice, but it would bother me. Was it you talking about this or someone else? Like how you discovered new methods by making mistakes? It was me. Yeah. Um, yeah. With, with the, the spray paint or the, the lacquer or something, right? Yeah. The cracked effect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And th that happens a lot or it doesn't work for what you're doing now, but you look at it and you're like, well, that would work for this if I ever had to make that again. Yeah. And so you pick up all these different tricks and then you have people asking you, oh, wow, how, how did you make that? And it's like, well, there's so many like little tricks and mistakes you've made along the way that you've pieced together to be able to produce this end result. And to try to explain that sometimes is like, it's tough to do. Mm -hmm. And also like, like you had to go through a lot of pain to get that result and have that knowledge. And I just tell people like, this is kind of what I use, but it's just trial and error. And you just got to play around until you get the effect you're looking for. Yeah. What's a tip, like something you've learned, whether it be by mistake, like we were saying, or by trial and error, um, you know, a tip that maybe you think 
any miniaturist could use. One thing I'm always trying to improve on is making my dirt look realistic. Mm -hmm. And one way to do that is to use real dirt. Um, but I, it's not organic dirt. You know, it's like a clay silty material that's not going to grow mushrooms or anything and okay. cook it in the oven or whatever to make sure it's sterile, clean, dry. Um, but after I apply that down, uh, I'm starting to play with shading and using paints and um, like weathering pastels and things like that to start to shade the dirt to make that look a little bit more realistic. Mm -hmm. So I'm having some fun with that. Uh, whereas before it was just putting dirt down basically on plaster and counting on the varying topography and landscape to try to make it look real with shadows and things like that. Mm -hmm. And when you say that you, you sort of tint it with pastels and all that, do you do this after it's sort of glued down and it's like a, a solid surface? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause everything I do, it's gotta be, um, it's all, everything is fixed in place that so you can tip it upside down. I yeah. call it the blizzard test. The yeah, yeah, yeah. Blizzard test. Mm -hmm. Um, so once everything is glued down, um, at that point you kind of go around with the paintbrush and you start and to try to explain how you do it. I don't really know how you do it. You're just kind of do it. Yeah. Filling around and <laughs> painting this and that. And eventually you stand back and you call it, you call it good enough. What about you? What's what's something you discovered recently? Um, it might seem silly, and I feel like maybe a lot of miniature artists uh, already. I know a lot of miniature painters, like the the D and D miniatures. I know a lot of those guys use this. I've only started using it recently. Um, I I use a lot of the little Vallejo paints. Yeah, same here. And I've had this thing that I'm going to mention, I've had it for over a year and I've only kept it like near my airbrush paints and I don't airbrush that much. So I wasn't really using it. Um, and I found myself every time I, I take the paint right before I paint it, I always got to like shake it and like bang it up against my hand. Um, and it's a little, uh, shaker, like a little paint shaker where you just stick it on and it vibrates. Um, well, that would save me a lot of shaking. Yeah, and they're super cheap. They're they're made. They're either made for tattoo artists or uh, nail polish, but they're basically it's the same thing. There's like thousand different brands on Amazon, but they're all the same one. They're just rebranded. Uh, I got one for tattoos just because it was black, uh, and the other ones are white. Um, but I keep it right next to my paint, so it's like I grab the paint, put on the vibrator. And then it's good to go. That's what she said. <laughs> oh, and it's, it changes the consistency. The, I don't get that little clear liquid coming out at the beginning anymore. That's what she said. That's my joke. Damn it, Dwight. And that, that's been a little bit of a game, like the most recent yeah. game changer for me. Like I started doing that maybe two weeks ago. Uh, instead of the shaking, shaking and banging it up against the table and um, super, super useful if Anyone paints with those little paints, I highly, highly suggest it. Um, if you're in the D&D community, it's not news to you, but um, highly recommend it. Super cheap. I'm going to get one of those. Uh, kind of related to that, though, something else I've discovered, I guess, in the past couple of months when I was painting some of my miniature construction workers is like keeping a hairdryer on the workbench. And when you paint something, hit it with an air, uh, hair dryer and it, it dries it almost immediately. You can keep painting without getting it all over your fingers or smearing. Yeah, I don't know if you can see it in this video, but 
I have a hairdryer like basically in a holster right next to my paints. Um, yeah. And it's just like, it's, it's like second nature. I don't even realize it now. Like I'll paint something and just like blow dry it, put it back. And um, I'm almost thinking of getting a second one um, just to keep next to my airbrush station. Um, just because I keep it plugged in and like they're not near each other. So I'd have to always like walk over with a piece, blow dry it, walk back to the airbrush station, do another coat. Again, we're talking like seven feet apart, but would be nice to just have it there. Um, yeah, totally. Shop efficiency is key. Yeah, I'm the same. I, I could tell you're organized like I am. Everything's got a spot. Yeah, it, it helps to, to, you know, when it's time to clean up, like I clean up at the end of every day. Uh, and I find like if something has a spot, it kind of makes you want to put it there. Um, versus like if you're not organized, then anything can go anywhere. So when you clean up, you're actually making more of a mess than you're actually cleaning up. Whereas if you have a hook and that hook is for this thing, if that thing is not there, then it must be out somewhere on the counter or whatever, you know? So it makes cleanup super quick. Yeah. On the construction side of things, there was something that I studied quite a bit while I was in school um, called lean construction. And it's kind of all derived from Toyota and manufacturing and how hyper efficient they are and trying to integrate that into construction, which is very disorganized and there's a lot of rework, a lot of inefficiencies. So um, I kind of take that into my workshop as well. And one, I guess, tool, one lean tool is like a shadow board. And so in my toolboxes, I have foam. And so when I open it up for all my woodworking hand tools that are, you know, they're expensive and I take good care of them. I can see if a hand plane is missing because there's a cutout for it in this foam that is empty, but it's nice because like everything I know exactly where it goes, it's not labeled, but I can see the shape of it. And like, you never have to wonder where something is. And my whole shop isn't like that. I'd, I'd love for it to be someday, but part of it, part. Yeah. Of it. I'm, I'm huge on shop infrastructure. Um, I recently sort of redid my infrastructure a little bit when I expanded the shop. Um, but I always sort of, my, my thought process is like, this is where I work and everything that I need, like for sort of like the everyday tools should be within like arm's reach, paintbrushes, tweezers, knives, all that stuff. And then all like the secondary stuff that I don't need every day, airbrushing, uh, electronics, all that that can be a little further away. Um, yeah, talking about shop efficiency. So for me, like my shop, it's just my garage at my house. Um, but I have a lot of woodworking tools and because I do so many different things in there, like sometimes I'm like, it's a full on wood shop. Sometimes I'm doing a bunch of painting. Sometimes I'm doing miniatures, 3D printing. So it's, it's a small space and there's a lot of stuff in it, but mm-hmm. everything is on wheels. So within like 10 minutes, I can totally transform my shop based on what I'm doing and like what's where I need room. Um, like for this last table I built, that was 26 feet long. It literally went from wall to wall in my <laughs> shop. And for must've been six months to get from one side of my shop to the other, I had to crawl underneath that table. No way. So I, I, I had foam mats between my sawhorses that I'd get down, crawl under, get back up. And then like you get to the other side and then you'll look back at the 
workbench on the other side of the table and there's the tool you need. And then you do that about 10 more times until you have what you need to do the, the task. Wow, your your thighs must have been on fire by the end of the day. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I should be in better shape than I am after all that. Yeah. But that, like, so keeping everything mobile is a big thing for a lot of woodworkers because a lot of us are just doing it in our garage. Uh, so keeping everything on wheels is is key. Yeah. I, I actually converted my, I don't want to say old shop because it's still part of the shop, but like what was my, my shop is now um, just like my woodworking area. So I have like my built big DeWalt saw and my sanders and basically anything that makes sawdust and dust of any kind is in there. Uh, and I put up um, like a clear like vinyl curtain between oh, that yeah. area and this area. So if I'm doing like a lot of sanding or whatever, I just close that curtain and I don't get a lot of dust on this side. That's one thing that's tough for me because yeah, I, it's I, all one room. I, I'm always trying to, it's in one room and I'm always trying to fast track, you know, well, something is drawing. I want to be doing something else to maximize my time. And so being a wood shop, like when you're doing woodworking, it creates dust. Like I, I have, dust collection that'll remove a lot of the dust and then i have an air filter that'll cycle the air in the room and mm -hmm. cycle this, the dust there so that helps keep the dust down or, or it reduces the amount of time i have to wait before i can paint or stain or finish a piece once it's been once the shop has been worked in mm -hmm. so that helps a lot but it's still it's tough I'd, I'd love to have a finishing room someday where i can do my painting and finishing without having having to think about dust yeah it's uh, yeah the shop is uh you know it's my new hobby i'm always finding ways to improve it and and all that and, and and you know what as as i move into the bigger version of my shop it's it's never like it's never enough right like you're always like no. when i was doing it like when i expanded into this room i was like oh my god i'm never gonna need a new shop ever again like this is it um and this is a room, uh, it used to be a guest room in my basement. And my workshop used to be basically like a very big storage closet. It was like nine by 10, very small. Uh, no, nine by eight, okay. sorry. Um, and now I'm, I'm just the second half of the shop is 15 by 13. Um, wow. Yeah, so it's, it's, yeah, it's quite, quite a lot larger than it was before. Um, but I could tell you like, I could take over my whole basement and find oh, yeah. ways to use it. You know, right now I'm using about half my basement. So I could literally double my shop tomorrow. I could probably find uses for all that space. Um, for me, the, the space is, is, is really because I, I want to work on multiple projects at once. Um, like you just mentioned, there's a lot of downtime in what we do, letting things dry, whether it's glue or paint. Um, yeah. And I can either work on another part of that project on another workbench, or I can, you know, start project number three, four, and have other tables where something's just sitting there drying or whatever. And, and for me, it's, I don't know how your brain works, but I have so many projects that like, if I work on one too long, regardless of what it is, I, I, I start to get bored, not bored, but like, it feels overwhelming and exhausting. So to just like yeah. start, you know, a little part of the next one, whether it be like a little accessory or a little something you have to make for the other one, it's a nice little break. 
Yeah. And one thing I find too, like my projects, like some of them are, are huge. And like the, the last table I've talked about the 26 foot long one, like that took over a year to build. Mm -hmm. And there were so many days like I would walk in my shop and like, there is just so overwhelming. And like, you look at it and like, there's so many things you have to do, but you just start focusing on one area. And the nice thing about these pro like these projects are big and they take a long time, but there's so many small pieces to them and like milestones you can hit, like whether it's painting a construction figure, it's like, okay, well that piece is done now. Like there's a little dopamine hit. I'm like high on that for a bit. And then I'll work on the next piece. Yeah. I'll build this model shovel. And then I'm proud of that. I can post that. So there's lots of finished products within. Yeah. You have to look at everything almost like chapters, you know, like, if, yeah. I feel like it's those little accomplishments, like you said, those little dopamine hits that kind of gets you going. I feel like if your your mind doesn't work that way and you always see the project as a whole, it's way more overwhelming, especially for projects like yeah. you said that, you know, take six months or whatever. I, I have a project I've been working on for over a year. Um, okay. I'm doing all of Hill Valley from Back to the Future for a client. Nice. And how big will that be? It's 143rd scale. I would say probably five feet by four feet. Oh yeah, so that's quite like a big. like a size of a like a small dining room table. Um, but there's just like a lot of buildings, you know, like so many different types of buildings. There's obviously the clock tower building. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on. It's all going to be lit. There's going to be cars. So there's a lot of a lot of stuff. And and you know, my client is super understanding. I told him I said, look just the way my business works. I, I can't dedicate like six months straight to just your project. Um, and he's like, I'm in no rush. Take your time. So what I do is like, I'll do two, three projects then I'll make a building for that piece. I'll do another right. two, three projects then I'll do another building. Um, so it doesn't feel as overwhelming as well for me. Yeah. That helps break it up. Yeah. And what, what's fun is because I do a lot of back to the future. Um, sometimes, for example, if I have a client that orders, the like the clock tower um and i create let's say all my laser files and whatever i need for that well then when it comes to his build i'll have it like 50 percent done already because i've already done it for this other client so that's what's fun about like doing a lot of the same you know i do a lot of ghostbusters and a lot of back to the future so i always keep my files i keep everything so i can reuse anything for other builds you know yeah yeah, lots of lots of efficiency there. Yeah. So there's a lot of people who do things similar to what we do, like miniature building. Yep. Uh, or scale model building. Uh, but it, I find like it's interesting how it's all their background and the other parts of their life have an impact on how they're it. I guess how their 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 miniature work comes to life. Like it, it's totally reflective of other aspects of their life that kind of shine through. Like for me, it's construction with you. Like, how would you describe like how your background is um, shone through in your work and shaped your, sure. I guess like the, your signature um, features and um, aspects of your work? Uh, for me, it's a really good question. Um, for me, I've like, when I was in high school, you know, and then you start thinking about like what you're going to study, what you're going to do as a job when you grow up. I always wanted to work in film. I always wanted to work in set design or 
effects design, anything like that. Um, and because I'm much older than you, um, <laughs> when I was in high school, uh, a little movie came out uh, that changed the game for practical effects. And that movie was called Jurassic Park. Welcome to Jurassic Park. I know the one. Yeah. And that movie scared me as much as I'm a huge fan and I love it. It scared me in terms of my career. Because up until that point, I was like, I want to work in miniatures in the movies. Like, that was my goal. Um, if I had to leave and move to L.A. Or, or New York or somewhere, like, I was going to do it. Um, and when that movie came out, um, it, it kind of changed the game. Uh, even people that, you know, had been in the, in the industry for 30 years were like, well, we're done. So what are you thinking? Oh. We're out of a job. Don't you mean extinct? You know, luckily they, you know, a lot of these people were already legends, already made name, and they found ways to stay in the industry. But to for someone that was in high school looking to get into it, I was like, if this is where they are now, by the time I finish college, where where is the industry going to be? There's not going to be room. What for part of what part of it was scary? Was it the special effects that they were able to pull off without like? Because I know in some cases they use like actual physical. It was, is it was, I think what everyone in the arts was asking themselves at the time was if this is what they can do with a computer and the create this, like, what do they need miniatures for? What do they need sculpting for? What do they need? You know? Um, and again, like they're, they still use them today, but not like, not like they did back in the day. You know, you, you look at a movie yeah. like, you know, the first Ghostbusters, the amount of miniature shots alone in that movie are uh, staggering. Yeah. So, you know, sort of like my, my dream of creating miniatures for a film was was sort of killed. Um, and then I went on to graphic design and, and all that stuff. And then when I started to get into the hobby, I guess I naturally went to the movies that inspired me to want to be a miniature artist in film, which was Back to the Future and Ghostbusters and all these films. Um, so it's sort of like a, a warm, happy place for me. I guess. Yeah, like um, everything kind of came full circle, eh? Yeah, and, and you know, the first three miniatures I ever made were uh, from Back to the Future. I did one from each film, and I just posted those online, and then they completely went viral, and everyone wanted to buy them, and I was like, I'm not selling these. Like, these are mine. You know, <laughs> like, get your own type of thing. And just to, to you know, it's, it's also like to, to see that that there was this whole community of people that are as stuck on nostalgia as I am was super fun as well. You know, like I, like a lot of my, my client, I have a lot of regular clients that collect from me. And a lot of us have sort of become friends through the years because we both get excited about the same stuff. Yeah. Um, I have some clients I'm like, Oh man, I was rewatching gremlins and like, it'd be so cool to, to do this scene. And I, I just recently posted the, the gremlins with the, in the vent with the, I saw with that bow and arrow yeah, with the light. Yeah. And so that was, it was a commission technically, but that was me reaching out to one of my clients that I know loves gremlins. And I'm like, Hey, I had the, this idea for this scene. Would you be interested? And he's like, let's do it. You know, like he was just as excited as I was. Um, so that's, that's how I find my way to make what I want but also, you know, have it profit the business. Um, yeah. And, 
yeah like the the whole nostalgia thing and and nostalgia like it's a powerful thing and so that fact that, that that's part of like your package and like a, it's a tool that you can use to market what you do like it's that's a powerful tool man yeah i got one other question david that i wanted to ask like so you've been doing this for like 10 or 11 years now it's going to be 11 years in 2024 wow uh that's amazing first of all uh but i was wondering like at what point did you decide okay i'm gonna i'm gonna do this full time and then what did that look like kind of before social media became such a big thing and played such a big role in promoting and sharing I mean, 10 years ago, social media was, was a thing, was still a thing. Um, it wasn't what it is now in terms of the influencer, digital content creator aspect of it. Um, but I'll, I'll answer the, the first part of your question. So I, I had a day job um, and I was at a point where I was getting order after order after order for my miniatures and... I was thinking about going full time and I was just like, you know, it's scary. You know what I mean? You, you provide for your family and things like that. So it's, it's a little bit. Um, and I just kind of at one point told myself, if I can get to a point where in the next year I can at least make equal to what my salary is, then I'll take the chance. Yeah. Um, and literally the moment I told myself that I ended up getting, I think two or three commercial jobs, um, which wasn't even, believe it or not, was not even a thought in my head when I was thinking of going full time. Cause prior to that, it was only private commissions. And I was like, wow, I'm getting so many commissions. I could do this full time. Not even thinking like a company could hire me or a studio could hire me or whatever. And that's when you're talking what I call real money, you know, like that's, yeah, you know, money that, you know, you're, you're like, I can put this aside and renovate my shop and pay my bills, you know? Um, so obviously like the first three years I did it, um, I had a full-time job, any money I made, um, most of it went back into like tools and things like that, just cause I was starting out and I didn't have much, um, and then, you know, I started profiting and profiting and, and I got, got to the point where financially I think I could do it. And then, like I said, I got like three, three big jobs. One was with Universal um, for the 35th anniversary for Back to the Future. So I did some stuff for them. Uh, and back then, you know, I had a website. Uh, I had social media. Um, most of my work still came from Instagram. Um, but it was just slower, you know, it was like, right. I would get a lot of work, but it was like maybe like one request every two months. Whereas now it's one request per two weeks. And then it's a question of if I take it, if I don't, if they're willing to wait the waiting list or not. Uh, but in terms of requests coming in, it's almost weekly, I would say. Um, so it's a nice steady flow. Yeah, the, the biggest thing for me uh, had nothing to do with finances or anything like that. It was, and if and if ever you decide to go completely full-time, you'll have this moment too. Um, it's, it's when you finally quit your job and you now have 
eight to 10 hours a day for your craft. So that table that took you six months will probably take you three. Mm-hmm. So your, your judgment of time and how long something takes will completely change. Um, you know, I, I remember a time where clients would ask me, you know, to make a certain, you know, one of my typical builds, let's call it. And I would tell them like, oh, it's going to be at least two months. And then when I went full time, that two month project became two weeks, three weeks. Cause it's eight hours a day, every day. Like, you know, I don't have another job in my brain that I'm thinking of like, oh, I have a meeting tomorrow and yeah. blah, blah, blah. You know, like you're only doing that. So that's a huge, huge game changer in terms of, and it just speeds everything up. You know what I mean? It speeds up yeah. how much you're posting on social media. It speeds up, you know, how much work you can do in a certain amount of time, which speeds up how much money you can make in a certain amount of time. Um, it, it just changes your whole flow. You know, everything we talked about before, the making mistakes and learning and learning a new tool and learning how to 3D print, learning how to laser cut, all that becomes super compressed because you can right. dedicate days and days and days and days upon days to these things, whereas before it was your spare time. Because like everybody else, like and I are have you a family. able to turn it off? Am like, I able to turn it like, off? Like, uh, like with how fixated we get on projects, like I know, I know like when I'm not working on my day job, like I just want to be in the shop. I got to get this done. Like I want to get to this. That doesn't change. Then you have, no, no, no. that doesn't change. You just have to manage it then. Right. Yeah. That doesn't change the, you know, one thing I love about working from home and, and I think, I mean, I don't think I'll ever get this big, but I think if ever I get to a point where I'm so big, where I need like a warehouse and a team of people, I think my biggest pet peeve will be, that it's not in my house. And it, it, it's not a question of convenience. It's just the way the artistic brain works. Sometimes I'll literally be sitting on my couch watching YouTube. And I'll just be like, that's how I can make it. And I literally run downstairs to my shop and I do it. And it takes five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever. Um, that's just how my brain is. Like sometimes I'll just like, I could be having supper and just a light bulb goes off on like how I can make this thing look like this texture or whatever um and you know i have days that are um i call them like non-production days so there's days where i'm i'm physically not making anything but it might be a day where uh i'm editing a video for social uh then i'm doing like blueprint files for the laser cutter i'm 3d modeling files for you know something i need to 3d print um, I'm packing and shipping something. So I have to create the labels and, you know, all this stuff. So like there's days where like I'm in my shop, but I'm not making anything. I'm preparing to make things. I'm doing logistical stuff. Um, and I usually reserve those days for the days where I don't feel like building. And there are days where like, I just don't feel creative. Like I don't feel like it. Um, so those days I know that I can like, even if I don't want to be in my shop physically, I'll just grab my laptop. I'll go sit on my couch upstairs, put on the TV and just do anything I can work related on the computer. Yeah. Cause it's all stuff that has to get done at some point. Yeah. So. Yeah, why not no, no time gets when you, when you do this full time, no time gets wasted. 
you know, even though I work for myself, there's never a day where, unless I'm sick or something, but there's never a day where I'm like, oh, you know what? I'm not feeling it today. I'm just going to watch a movie. It, it never, even if I try and tell myself that, I end up just grabbing, like, I always have a laptop in my living room. I always end up grabbing my laptop and, like, next thing I know, I'm doing blueprints for the next project or I'm researching, you know, like, the accurate 1984 poster for this movie and trying to hunt it down and all that yeah. stuff. Or, uh, you know, I'll put on a movie of the project I'm working on while I do other stuff like answer emails or whatever. And then as I'm watching the movie, like little things come up and I just pop up my notes app and like take notes. I'm like, Oh, okay. In this scene, we see it this way and blah, blah, blah. So yeah, yeah it never stops. It never goes away. Cool. <laughs> yeah. We're doomed. Yeah. But you know what? It, it's, it, it's so cheesy to say this, um, but it's a, it's a saying because it's just true. When you do what you love, it doesn't feel like work. Um, yeah, and that's that's another question I had. You know, like does when you made it work, did it did it, did it change? In no, terms of enjoyment. No, I mean the the only thing that changes is, you know, it lights a fire under your ass. In yeah. in in the financial sense, like now you know, yeah. like this is what pays the bills. It's not a paycheck from some random company that knows you show up from nine to five every day. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's that added pressure. Um, again, I, I, I got into this when things were already steady. So I never had that like panic of, Oh my God, I'm not going to be able to pay this this month because yeah, I don't have enough commissions or, or whatever, you know? Um, and again, like I'm, I'm totally blessed for that. I, I, I realize that I'm lucky for it. Um, but I also realize that I work very hard for it. Um, that would be the only change, you know, if I'm thinking of like other people, what might, you know, what might it be for them? It might be that, um, you just need to be sure of yourself. You need to, you know, I would say before anybody goes full time, they have to have their rhythm, you know, they have yeah. to see like, okay, like you know, I'll, like I always look at like, what, what's my worst, right? What's the longest gap of time I've gone without getting any contracts. So right now that's almost never, but like, let's say years ago, it would have been like two months or three months. So then it's like, okay, well the, the, the last contract I, I got, would it cover me for two, three months? If not, then it's probably too soon to, to go full time. So you have to like kind of use your brain. Um, yeah, yeah. You got to make sure it's financially viable if you're going to make a leap like that. Yeah. And, and like, you know, not everybody is in a situation or lucky enough where maybe they have a partner that makes a lot of money or things like that. And they can just create art and not have to stress about it. Um, I would say the average person needs to make a living or needs to make a certain amount to keep sort of the lifestyle that they've made for themselves. Um, and keep that going. So for me, like I said, I've been very lucky. Um, there's no lack of, no lack of work here. Um, I even thought at one point of sort of putting on my Instagram account or something like commissions closed until like 2025. Um, but I didn't. Uh, and I tell people when they message me and like most people are willing to wait 
Um, and I get it because like the people that buy my stuff are also the same people that like might buy like a hot toy collectible and they have to pre-order like a year and a half before and then it's delayed another yeah. year and whatever. So like they're kind of used to it. Again, like I'm super grateful that my clients are so patient and understanding. And, mm-hmm. uh, and those are the people you want to work for too. Like I've got, like I get messages all the time and I got a, a long list and I just tell people now like, I can't commit to anything right now. Like I'm booked for years, um, but you know I'll put you on my waiting list and I'll reach out if I get an opening. And the day may never come. Yeah, are all your contracts uh, private? Um, yeah, like they're mostly construction companies. Whether it's people who own them or people who work in construction and they want uh, the people, I guess the tables are people who own the companies. Mm-hmm. Do you, what, I guess my question is, do you, do you separate the two or is it just the same list? It's really just the same list. It's like, you're interested, interested in a piece. You're on the, on the list. Okay. See, I, I used to do that as well. And what made me change it was when I started getting commercial work, um, a lot of them had stricter deadlines. So I was put in a position where do I lose this opportunity with Amazon or Netflix or whoever it is, or do I figure out a way to do it and not screw up my whole list of people waiting? Um, And that's when I sort of changed my policy, my sort of business policy. So basically now anything that's commercial will take priority over a private commission. Right. And I guess, you know, I, I don't have a separate list, but I have a, a big spreadsheet, I'll call it. And it's, you know, is it a company? Uh, what do they want? Uh, budget, you know, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, I guess, not a list, but it's all taken into consideration. And at this point, because it's a side gig, I just commit to one project at a time. Yeah. And I guess when... You, you may eventually have to switch to what i'm doing just because yeah no and, and your your strategy makes sense yeah because you you may lose out on on opportunities and stuff just because and no offense to any of your clients but like you know joe blow wants you know a, a tractor because he was a tractor worker for 30 years like that's great but you know uh, a commercial client has more of a chance to be a repeat customer versus right. you know a, a, an average person um so i like i always separate the two and for me it's mostly i mean i have yet to work with a company that doesn't have a deadline mm-hmm. you just have to be honest like you have to be honest and give them the option you can be like i would love to do your project um you know this is what i have on my plate right now you know i will try my best to get it to you for this date but i just can't guarantee it and you need to be okay with that you know, and, yeah, and the thing is for me, it's what I say. Yeah. And for me, it's, I always tell them like, it's not always in my hands either. Like, you know, when I get a project, I research like, okay, am I going to need any special materials that I don't have? Am I need to buy something or a tool or something that I don't have? Then that thing that I order might be delayed. It might be, you know, so, um, I, I have a whole process that I do because I have such a long waiting list when I'm, when I'm about two or three projects out, I'll start looking at like, okay, what's my, you know, third, fourth project coming up and do I need to order anything special for it? Um, so that by the time I do get to it in like two months, for sure, I'll have it or I'll be able, I'll have enough time to like cancel that order and order it from somewhere else. And, 
you know, I've learned yeah. to just, that's how I think now, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And you gotta like, even while you're focusing on the project at hand, you gotta be almost like designing the other projects in your head so you can figure out what you need, yeah. what you don't have and what you have to get. Yeah. And one thing like sort of to, to harken back to the talk we had about our shop, um, is materials as well. You know, I hate that feeling of waking up and I'm like excited. I'm like, Hey, today I'm going to make this part of the build or this. And I go and it's like, I have no more plexi. I have no more this. I ran it a glue or whatever, you know, like that to yeah. me, like will ruin my entire day. Like those are the days where I'm like, well, I'm sitting at the computer today. Like I'm, I'm not like I get yeah. frustrated and it's with myself. Like I have no, I don't have someone in charge of materials that I can blame for this, you know? Um, so I try and like order a lot of stuff in bulk or order a lot of stuff in material, like a, in, in advance. Um, and, and I've gotten, you know, that's a part of my, my business that like I've had to learn the sort of the logistics, the ordering things in advance. Like I was always super last minute before and it was very frustrating. And now like, you know, as I'm like laser cutting, I'm like, okay, I have 10 sheets of MDF left, like probably a good time to order it because by the time I order it it'll take like a, another week so like in a week I might go through about 10 sheets or so so and and like it's a good I have a good flow of like what I need how much I use um I never wait till like I'm like crap I'm out of glue to order glue you know like it's just yeah again for some people that might be common sense but that for me is something I have to really put thought into and just make sure I always have everything when it, that I need. So, mm -hmm. yeah. and for me, sometimes I use that as an, like if I run out of tape or glue, it's like, okay, best, be, guess I better go get a coffee and go to Home Depot <laughs> and Michael's and pick up some supplies. And, and $800 later, <laughs> $800 later, you went out for tape. You didn't really need. <laughs> yeah. Also, there's all this red stuff in my cart. I didn't plan on buying, but all right, Ryan. It's been a blast. Uh, I'm sure we will talk again as we always do on Instagram. And I uh, hope you guys enjoyed episode three. If you have any questions for me or Ryan, shoot them down in the comments below. Let me know what you thought. And uh, that's it. We'll talk soon. Okay. Thanks, David. Great having you. Scale Talk Podcast with David Miniatures.